This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is desperately hoping to avoid two quarters of negative podcast growth. That's right, I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. How are you, Doc? I am great. We are definitely going to be avoiding two quarters of negative podcast growth. We are. Unfortunately, we can't quite say the same for the economy, Matt. We're going to talk about the R word. It's finally arrived. No surprise, although there was a chance we might have avoided it. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some fun with numbers. No, really. We're not going to get too wonky on you, but how is it possible to be both up 30% and down 17%? We'll get into that quandary. We'll talk about more stimulus coming down the pike. ScoMo's found some more money at the bottom behind the couch, under the couch cushions. We'll wonder if that's going to be sufficient. Westpac, the Oztrack scandal rolls on, and apparently they've found everybody to blame. We'll see how that goes. And, mate, I might just, if we've got enough time, jump on the famous, maybe infamous, high horse, and, of course, we'll dip into the full mailbag. Shall we get on with it? Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy, this is not exactly breaking news. We're recording this on Thursday morning on the 4th of June. Yesterday, though, about 11.30 in the, in the, in the morning, we got the news that Australia is, if not officially in recession, effectively we know that we will be, because these things are only ever done in hindsight, because the Australian economy contracted by 0.3% in the first quarter of this year. That was January through March. And of course, no one expects that the, the second quarter, April through June, is going to be positive. So when, not if, when the second quarter is also negative, that hits the old technical recession definition of two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And well, I don't know what comes next. Off the cliff we go, the business bounces back. I saw a tweet, mate, overnight saying we're actually already out of recession, which I also thought was fascinating. So there's, there's so much going on here. Let's just break it down for a little bit just to kind of have, add a bit of information for our, our listeners. A recession, as I said, so GDP is the gross domestic product of a country. We wanted to find our terms, as members have told us before, listeners have told us before. Two, negative, two consecutive negative quarters, right? So this time last year, GDP was X. Now it's X minus something. GDP has fallen. In other words, the total amount of stuff we've produced has gone down. That's negative, right, by definition. That's contraction, that's negative growth, if that's even possible. Two of those in a row, and we have a recession. And again, it's one of those terms that actually has no official definition. It's kind of, it's kind of this accepted crowdsourcing. <laughs> Before crowdsourcing was cool, everyone's kind of agreed that, okay, if we have two quarters of negative growth, we'll call that a recession. Um, and again, as I said, that seems to be exactly where we are. Toilet paper almost saved us from the first quarter. We, we, we were, you know, 0.3% decline is not bad considering how terrible February and March were. So frankly, a good result GDP-wise relative to what we might have expected. And in fact, the market bounced yesterday, and we'll talk about that. This quarter is, all, is almost, well, not almost, it's certainly going to be terrible. Sufficient for the, even the treasurer to come out and say, yep, we're in recession. We're not going to wait for the numbers. We know we're in recession. Now let's get on with it. Your thoughts? Um, no, well, I mean, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it was almost a given that there's going to be a recession, right? I mean, um, and right, the other thing the other, other thing is that, you know, whether whether or not you're technically in recession or not is, in my mind, immaterial almost because, uh, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we're all seeing what's happening, right? And, you know, whether it's the toilet paper that I couldn't find or whether it's the potato that I couldn't find, I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, that even if that saved us from a recession, did, would it really have made any material difference, right? It doesn't make any material difference to those people who don't have jobs, to those people who have lost jobs, to those businesses that are have suffered, are suffering, and, and 
and so on. Yeah. So I think that's the reality of the matter. Um, so the, I, you know, uh, like the number is better, worse. I mean, I, I think that's all nice, good discussion. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, the technicalities, I guess, matter and it matters in this. It, I think it matters more in terms of how it's talked about in media, in uh, you know, on TV, newspapers, and you know, Twitter. In reality, it probably does not matter as much, or, or it matters mm-hmm. because other people talk about it. So that's how I think about it. I think that's the worst part, mate. I got to say, I think the, the worst part of a recession is actually the fact that we put a label on it, and that absolutely impacts what people think and how they act, right? So, oh my God, we're in recession. Like yesterday, yesterday morning before the, the market numbers, the economy was kind of in trouble and okay, it's gonna be bad, but fair enough. After 11.30, oh my God, we are in recession. Quick, pull out all the stops. What's going to happen next? It yeah. changes the conversation. It changes the mentality. Yeah, I think I think that's really, the, I think, I, you know, that's, I think, in my view, that's the sad part, right? I mean, it shouldn't, uh, I mean, in a way, because what should really matter is, you know, what happened at that point was what happened. And mm. what we did at that point is what we did. And what we are doing right now is what we are doing, right? I mean, <laughs> those mm. all have impacts. And I think, you know, unlike... So, like you know, we, we are investors. We are forward-looking, right? So we don't like the fact that yeah. you know this is this is backward-looking uh, data. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, it plays into sentiment. It probably plays into how people are deciding or thinking about spending and so on. The the one right. thing that I'm very cautious about right now is, uh, I'll, you know, uh, I'll throw some caution here. So I think we know for sure uh, quarter two is going to be bad. I th- yep. And then, and then there's going to be stimulus money that's going to help us. The, the real question I have in my mind is quarter three, quarter four. You know, as the stimulus ta- starts to taper off, and this probably is a nice point for you know talking about other st- other stimulus and things like that. Um, as the stimulus tapers off, but a significant contributor, as I've said many times um, here, a significant contributor to the GDP growth is population growth, and if yep. you know immigration basically is net zero or whatever it is, the number is effectively mm-hmm. net zero right now. That will have a big impact on, you know, or, or, or oh, let me let me rephrase that. Not, it'll have an important mm-hmm. impact on yeah. how we look at the numbers, right? And I think that is the biggest unknown in my mind in terms of how it's going to change things, how it's going to make um, various parts of the economy react. So that's what mm-hmm. I'm watching for, really. Um, rest of the stuff is like, is is going according to playbook, I guess. So um, yeah. yeah, so that's the one thing that I'm watching. I think that's right. Look, I, so a couple of things I'm going to add. I, I think the I, I said on on Twitter yesterday, you know, if we were in recession by zero point one percent or not by zero point one percent, the economy would be exactly the same shape, realistically. Like a a point one percent growth, a point one percent decline. I mean, among friends, that's a, that's almost margin of error, right? Like we can assume the the economy is in the same place, and governments and consumers and businesses should do this exactly the same things, regardless of the label. I actually find our need to label stuff really, really, really annoying, quite frankly. Does it matter the recession? No. If the market's in a bull market or a bear market, does it matter? Of course not. If there's a correction, does it matter? I've ranted about that before. Of course not. These are these are labels that people kind of cling to that the media like to propagate. Frankly, people in our industry do the same. For, with absolutely no, like there's no, there is no, con, there's no context and there's no um, necessary, no necessary anyway. There can be in, in impact or, or flow on effects, but there's nothing specific that needs to happen because of that. If the market's up 19%, it's not a bull market. It's up 20%, it's a bull market. Wow, well that's 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 hugely different. I'm going to do massively different things, of course. I mean, I jest. Of course, I'm not. Like that's the point. So, I, I think that's right, mate. I think you, look, it does bring home the reality and the seriousness of it. I'm really annoyed, mate, that already the politicking has bloody started. And I like I've I've bashed both parties, but now we've got you know in this case the Labor Party running ads of Frydenberg saying yes, of course we're in recession, as if that's somehow his fault. Um, and again, I, I have my issues with Josh Frydenberg in different areas. 
But that's when, you know, it just gets really unhelpful, right? This, the politicking, the labelling, the media, the headlines. We've all got to just cool down a little bit and go, you know what? If the economy's in trouble as it was before 11.30 yesterday, we do things we've already done. And we're not going to do anything differently today just because it's changed. So for our listeners, and um, whether it's your personal finance, your investments, whatever, the label is completely irrelevant other than maybe it actually gives us an opportunity if the market freaks out. The problem, mate, it didn't freak out. The SX was up 1.8% yesterday. I heard it being blamed, or blamed, not blamed, in the case, um, caused by the fact that people were expecting a worse GDP result and somehow this was a good news story. Things are better than we expected. I saw another story yesterday, one of the investment banks, might have been KPMG, maybe it was the accounting firm, saying they expect that things are going to be less bad than they expected previously. What do you make of the market being up 1.8% yesterday on, on the back of that recession news? Well, you know, here's the thing, right? <clears throat> so first of all, like I, we disagree sometimes and we agree sometimes. And, uh, you know, I'm going to start no, today with an me. agree. <laughs> uh, with, uh, with an agreement, right? Like, I mean, this is all complete nonsense when we, you know, if the market goes up, whatever, 2% because yep. the number is 0.01% better or worse or whatever it is and <laughs> exactly. goes down because it's probably... Exactly. It shouldn't. Really, it Doesn't it matter, shouldn't. It? it shouldn't matter. And and honestly, like you know, like it's plus point one percent or minus point one percent, as you said, is doesn't matter. Same thing is actually true in my view. Whether it is uh, you know point three percent, I mean, it is bad. But we knew it is going to be bad, right? I mean, what is so shocking about it? What do you think, mate? I'm just going to share. I'm just going to share quickly. Warren Hogan, so a friend of the fool, been on our podcast before. Um, his version of recession, by the way. So he says here, and this was a tweet ten hours ago as we record this on. So it was almost midnight. Um, yeah. Last night on Wednesday, night, he says Australia entered recession sometime around the 20th of March and exited recession about ten days ago. That assessment measures recession as the period from peak to trough in the level of economic output. The reality is the return of GDP to pre-recession levels could take two years. For me, that's a much more useful definition, right? A much more useful conversation. So basically saying 10 days ago, economic activity started to pick up again. We measure in quarterly buckets, so you can't see that, or at least if you only look at the headline numbers, you can't see that. His point is we've gone from peak to trough, it's now starting to pick up. And so that, that pick up itself, in his view, the recession is literally when things recede, so you go from you know, peak to trough, and then they start to expand, i.e. not a recession, or at least not you know, in, in the plain English use of the word, about 10 days ago. Do you, do you put any store in that? Yeah, well, you know, just think, like, uh, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, here's the thing that I, it's like, again, as I said, I think what I don't know yet, and I am not, I don't have a, a good reason or I don't have a good understanding or base to understand what's actually like there's a lot of stimulus money right now that's helping things right it really is. yeah so that's job keeper job seeker um, there's got to be businesses that were marginal previously uh-huh. that can't exist today yeah, because right. they fall off the cliff right marginal businesses would probably need uh, you know we're probably just you know, uh, just managing on. So I think that's the risk, right? So how many marginal businesses fall off? How many um, how many businesses that were previously okay now are struggling because, you know, yeah. things have changed? Yeah, right. uh, so I think that is what I don't know. They're the know. more important factors, right? And yeah. they are, I think, the important factors because, you know, one restaurant disappears, that results in, you know, a bunch of people, you know, there's flow on effects, of, you know, bank doesn't recover the money it might have paid for renovations or for the property or for the equipment. 
um, there are workers involved and things like that and that you know maybe there's a car loan involved so there's all those flow on effects that is not really clear um, and then yeah. you know if that restaurant disappears you know I'm using restaurant as an example it could be any other business that's a good one and, yeah. and, and then if that restaurant disappears well you know seeing that something has disappeared would might make someone else think well do i really want to put up a restaurant there you know do i want to take the risk right it has that impact on risk appetite of people so that's the part i'm not really sure like i think you know this the scheme the job keeper scheme actually i thought was really nicely done um in that sense that it 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 created this buffer but the, the reality though is i think it's going to help those who might have been sort of in the middle of the road but you know or probably help those that you know were doing actually okay but i think it probably does not help the ones that are struggling because you know it just it probably creates it's like you know if somebody was comatose or nearly comatose beforehand this probably extends the comatose for a little bit but then eventually i think there is that you know um, yeah, so that's that's what I think. Uh, why was the market? I was going to comment briefly on why the market up. I mean, one of the things to realize, I think, is or at least this is what I've been thinking about is we can think that the market is up, but I think on a you know on a forward basis, if you think about it, and you think about earnings, you know, ignoring the pandemic-driven earnings ret- uh, retraction, which is really just one-off, right? So if you forget that, then if you look at earnings. You look. If you look at fifteen times, sixteen times, of, uh, you know, forward earnings, and you think of that as yield, then uh, you know, just basically what I'm saying is, you know, you one hundred divided by whatever sixteen, uh, right. that is pretty attractive yield, right? If you think about it in terms of yield, and you compare that with what yield is available out there, then well, this six looks half percent, something like that, yeah, six and a half percent, right? Compare that with everything else that's available, which is basically zero. <laughs> <laughs> this is <laughs> this seems very attractive, and it's really the uh, the argument that um, you know on a relative scale, equities mm. would appear better, uh, and and that's why there's that you know rush towards equities. You know that's one explanation. I, I can you know it just seems it's I think not right to compare equities in terms of their valuations or their multiples historically because I mean. When did we in history have zero percent interest rates? Right. I mean, we have had right, exactly. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, historically, we have had interest rates. You know, that have been six, seven, eight. But you know, even you know, we have had double digit interest rates as well. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so I think accounting for that, I think, makes the difference, and that's why you know people. That's what they push for towards risk appetite in in mm-hmm. equities. So I think that's the general reason. I think that you know equities, not just here but everywhere, has bounced back pretty solidly. Say, well, everything else is zero. This is the best thing I've got. Uh, in a, in a way, so that's how I look at it uh, right now. It's it's the old it's the old acronym Tina, which I quite like. There is no alternative, which, as you say, is kind of like well, where else do you put your money? And, and so Tina, there is no alternative wins. It is also worth look. You make the point of interest rates, which I think you're dead right about. Let me just quickly try and illustrate that for our listeners who don't necessarily understand the direct correlation. Now, there's a whole lot of algebra which we won't go into because no one wants to hear it on an audio podcast, and frankly, no one wants to see it on paper either. <coughs> Excuse me, but um. The simple reality is think about inflation and growth in the same. And this shares are a little bit different, but the, the analogy holds. Would, you know, most people say, like, I want to get 5% growth, right? It just economically, it's called 5%, which is great. But if you get 5% growth and inflation is 4%, you've got to subtract that. So 5 minus 4 is only 1% growth. So 2% growth in a zero inflation world is actually better than 5% growth in a 4% inflation world, right? And the same with yield, same with anything else. And so to Doc's point, that's why it matters so much. If, if shares grow at 10% a year and inflation is 3%, your net result is 7 If you get an 8% result and inflation is 0, it's a lower nominal number 
but a better real growth rate. And that's that's why it's so super important. Is that fair to say, Mike? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, yeah, those are sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. I think that that's exactly what it is. I think, and well, I don't know whether it's exactly that, but you know, it appears to be that that's the yeah. most rational, <laughs> rational yeah, explanation. Well, I mean, that that makes sense, right? Like at some level, we used to. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I used to get seven percent interest in the bank, right? Which, which I'm gonna say, like, never again, right? Never since. But I thought I thought it was great. And now, frankly, it was still a lot better than we're getting now. It's not even comparable. But that was a nominal number we shouldn't take into account. If inflation was three and a half percent. Then my seven percent is only worth three and a half after after tax. Now after inflation, sorry. Now you're not getting three and a half percent now anyway, anywhere. So it is a very very different result. But again, the inflation number needs to come off that before you compare apples for apples. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, speaking of fun with numbers, we're going to keep going for a little bit because this is stimulating audio. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> I, want to, I want to talk about where the market's at, right? There is so much. We, we had a chat about this as a team yesterday, so I'm going to ask you to go over some ground we covered ourselves behind the curtain, but let's give our let's give our listeners a bit of a sneak peek. Um, here's two numbers, right? If you're a, I don't know if it's Austin or Pesimus, I can't remember, I can't even work it out. The market is so weird right now, I'm not sure who, which group is in which camp, but the market is both up 30% from its lows, and you kind of go, wow, how is that even possible? How can it be 30%? That's huge. The market's t- you know, off on a tear. It's getting overvalued. It's getting carried away. And then you say, the market is 17% down on where it was on February 20, and you say, wow, that's cheap. You know, almost $1 in five disappeared. I get a chance to buy stuff at a 17% discount. Man, that's cheap. I can't believe it's so cheap. Why am I not buying? Both of those views are being expressed by different people, sometimes even the same people, at the same time. And this is kind of the, the this is kind of the, the, the quandary we find ourselves in. We're in a really funny midpoint now. I read again, we're recording this before the market opens on Thursday. Uh, the market may well go through 6,000 points today, which again is an arbitrary and unnecessary round number that doesn't mean anything except that on the way back to 7,000 or so, you know, a lot higher than where we were at one point. Your thoughts, mate, on kind of the, the, the quandary of up 30 but still down 17. Should we be excited? Should we be pessimistic? Should we be scared? Should we be enticed to invest? How do you, how do you square that circle when there's two very large numbers in opposite directions and two very vocal crowds with opposite points of view? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, like, I mean, the, the issue here we have got is uh, it's basically anchoring, right? So we're anchoring to the low numbers because, you know, right now it seems like if you didn't pick up the shares at the bottom, then you are, you know, 30% worse off. Uh, at the same time, I mean, if you did pick up shares at the top, then you're 20% better <laughs> off, right? Uh, right now to buy. So so I think it's just it's, it's a classic anchoring that's happening. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think, as you said, it's the market is, oh, you call it weird, funny, interesting, uh, <laughs> pragmatic, non-pragmatic, you know, uh, voodoo, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I mean, uh, largely because, I mean, I think how the market has behaved, very few people would have predicted that the market would behave like this, mm-hmm. right? But it had a real swift fall. And it was not, I mean, you know, at one point, it appeared to me that the market could actually fall 50%. Um, right, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and it could stay there for a while because you know stuff looked really bad. Um, so the, so I think I don't know. I think um, what I tend to do, or you know, I just I, I tend to actually not think 
um, largely about the market as such because you know because we you know like I'm not an index investor so if I was an index investor mm-hmm. then you know it, it mattered to me a lot more what the market is doing so what I try to think about is individual companies and mm-hmm. the question I try to ask is you know which companies or what group of companies or what type of companies are likely to use this uh, you know disaster pandemic you know this op- as an opportunity Right, certain companies are going to use this as an opportunity and get ahead. Some companies are not going to be able to use this as an opportunity and get ahead. And I think that's sort of the um, the lens to think about. So there are some companies that will be doing very well. They'll be you know um, increasing their guidance and they're making more sales mm-hmm. because all of a sudden stuff that appeared to be distant in the future has now become more commonplace. Like in a good example is like just online shopping, right? Just because we were forced, just because a large number of people were forced to do online shopping for a period of time, that actually can cause behavioral changes, right? Um, and, and, and behavioral changes can result in speed up of uptake of something that would have taken several years. Uh, you know, you can actually curtail the period, right? And then the way I was explaining, well, in, in our group chat is, that almost entitles an, uh, a higher valuation because what you're really doing is the the cash flow that was coming in the future you're actually pulling it forward and 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 cash flow today or you know in the in the near future is is worth a lot more than in the distant future so that's the aspect i think that is going to push valuation for some companies higher whereas you know those companies that are not making uh, any substantive changes you know potentially their valuation should go down so that's the way I think about it. Um, nonetheless, I mean, the, the other viewpoint would be that, uh, well, if if you were a regular investor, right, uh, like if you're regularly contributing, so which is what typically happens in a in a in a say a super context, right? Every month, money is hitting. What it basically means is that you know the month of uh, uh, February and uh, oh sorry March and the month of April. Uh, and potentially month of May are good months because those that yeah, money is right. actually going to do better work, more work, um, yeah. you know, because again, you know, the one, I guess the final point I'll make is that the way to think about the highs is if, if, you, if you, unless you assume that the market is fundamentally overvalued, significantly overvalued, something is fundamentally completely wrong, then potentially the market is going to hit new highs over a period of time, right? So if that's going to be the case, then 70% below this high, we're going to cross that high at some point you're going to cross 6,000 at some point, 7,000 at some point, 8,000 at some point. We might come back to 7,000, but again, we'll cross that and go back. I mean, it's this, you know, the over um, over long periods of time, I think the market basically goes up. So this is good. I mean, you know, 17, 18% discount of the high. Um, you're just getting a better deal is how I look at it. But, you know, those are sort of the two viewpoints I have. Nice. I think that's right, man. I, um, I don't have much actually add to that. I want to think... You know, we, we bang the drum pretty loudly, certainly on here, certainly in our emails to our members and, and readers. Um, I certainly, you know, said very clearly that I thought, you know, if and when the market re- regained that high, discounted prices were a great time to get into the market. If, if it takes a little bit of time, well, maybe the returns aren't as great as you might like. But assuming it gets there, and it may not, we should absolutely say there is no guarantee. If and when it gets there, though, um, there were just, there were just, it seemed to me, as you say, for index investors in particular, um, just, just plenty of opportunity left on the table and, and plenty to go. Seventy percent of its highs, mate, feels about right to me, though. I have to say, given, given where what's changed since February twenty, given the fact that we now do have, you know, we are going to have a, a tough year for many, maybe most, uh, maybe the overwhelming majority of companies are going to have a tough twenty twenty calendar twenty twenty in particular. Um, now there's split over two financial years, which we kind of weird to try and work out because the financial year finishes 
in 24, 26 days. Um, so, you know, we are going to have this weird kind of crossover um, of financial years where the numbers aren't always super clear. We're not exactly sure what's going on. But it's a, yeah, it's an interesting kind of time to be thinking about investing. I don't, I'm not worried about investing at the current level, I have to say, but I also don't think it's super, super, super cheap. I wouldn't be rushing out to, you know, take a mortgage to the house and buy shares in the index. But as you, as you rightly point out, the other thing is there are plenty of opportunities if you're looking for companies that continue to do well or even doing better, as you say, um, in this kind of market environment. Speaking of marketing environment, let's uh, let's try and cover a couple of quick ones before we get on to the mailbag questions, which you always love to cover. Westpac out this morning, uh, blaming everything. <laughs> <laughs> the, the headline, they didn't even have enough room in the headline on the Australian for all the blame. Uh, the, the, the headline on the, on the Australian's homepage says, Tech Human Error blamed for Westpac, Westpac's Austrack failings. <laughs> and the actual story itself, they, they find enough room to add and a sleepy board blame for Westpac's Oztrack failings. And I remember this is where Westpac basically, allegedly, we should say, we need to keep saying, um, didn't share the appropriate information with the appropriate regulators as to who was taking money out, what they were doing with it, potentially allowing organised crime or simply individuals who wanted to remain untracked to do things they shouldn't have been allowed to do. Um, we talked about this a little bit, mate. I, I, I wanted to draw this one because i got to say, for the you know, tech, human error, sleepy board, fine. What still drives me nuts on this one is when they say sleepy board, they mean the board, the risk panel didn't review it, right? As opposed to what I think this is, which is no one at board level, even at a more macro level and at an executive level, who was setting the incentives to make sure this stuff didn't happen? And I think that's, that to me, that's the bit that makes, that frustrates me, right? There is part of it which is, you know, yes, the board should have had more better risk policies in place. Of course they should have, and in hindsight, that's obvious. But the, the, the culture that lets that happen unchecked, the culture that means no one along the chain of command actually flagged it at any point to say, hey, this doesn't seem right, or hey, have we checked this? Um, to say, you know, yes, the board, this buck must stop with the board, of course it must. But to say that, you know, it, it's, it's a board problem because the risk committee didn't meet, as opposed to the organisation was fundamentally, culturally, just, just misdirected, allegedly, I'll add in, just in case the Westpac lawyers are listening. Um, that, that's the bit that really drives me nuts, mate. You know, it's all these actions as opposed to the incentives and the culture that really allow or even encourage behaviour that doesn't necessarily have risk mitigation or risk, aware, risk awareness at the heart of what they do. Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree with you. I mean, yeah, this is more of a cultural problem. It's a problem about, you know, how you deal with things. Um, it, it's more of an organisational thing than a board thing per se, right? So, yeah. Um, I mean, but the board is responsible for the culture. Like, I absolutely agree the buck stops there. But the thing they're highlighting, the, the, the board failing, rather than saying the board failed because the culture and the incentives are wrong, they're saying the yeah. board's risk committee didn't meet and talk about this one thing. It's like, well, there's going to be something else. Another, it's like whack-a-mole, right? You knock this one down, another one pops up. Unless you have a culture which says this is not okay across our bank in any in any way, yeah. everyone should feel empowered to speak up. No one should be incentivized to do the wrong thing. In fact, maybe there should be like an internal whistleblower, you know, bonuses if they find problems. Or you know, there's there's better ways of setting up a structure to make this work. Surely. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the Westpac has been struggling a bit with these sort of issues. Um, well, but but at least I mean, here's the, you know, the, at least they're identifying the things they're talking about them at least, and they're mm -hmm. identifying you, you know all this. But most of these things, 
I guess you need the scapegoat. Maybe the scapegoat here is the board, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's, well, that's kind of what it feels like, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. But, but yeah, but maybe, maybe you know, this is this is the start of change maybe for them and uh, it should be a good thing if, I guess, uh, you know, they're making changes for the better. So, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying. Uh, just, yeah, like, I mean, it's tough. Yeah, it is. It is. All right, mate, let's... Um, uh, I'm going to... I'm going to rant. You know, you know I'm going to. You know what I want to. You know, you know I'm going to. What are you going to rant I, about? Oh, mate. So we talked about tax cuts last week, right? For companies. Mm-hmm. The, the companies that so desperately wanted to have a tax cut, they would do things if they got to keep 75 cents in the dollar. They wouldn't do if they got to keep 70 cents in the dollar, um, which is great. So I'm going, to, I'm going to tell my boss I'm not going to come to work unless I get 5% tax cut because I don't need the money I'm actually making unless I get more. That, that, they're my two options, right? I can sit at home and earn nothing. I'm, I'm going to do that unless I get a little bit more. Just it's madness. Anyway. Uh, I tweeted this, so I, I, you know, I, I'm a bit active on social media, as you well know. Um, some would say overactive, but I'll leave that to somebody else. That being said, I tweeted this week about the BHP tax scenario in Singapore. The AFR reported that BHP has avoided paying up to eight and a half billion US dollars in tax over the last 15 years by moving its marketing hub. I'll explain that in a minute to Singapore. Now, when I say avoided, I want to be very clear. I'm not accusing them of doing anything illegal, anything improper. They're doing exactly what they're allowed to do, and the, the tax law allows them to do it. There's, no, there's nothing untoward here. There's nothing secretive. No one's uncovered some amazing loophole all of a sudden. This has been well known for a very, 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 very long time. When you see the numbers, $8.5 billion US dollars over 15 years, call it $12 billion Australian among friends. It's probably slightly more than that, but let's be conservative for the fun of it. Um, I, and so I tweeted about this. I got more responses, more retweets, more replies for those to two tweets on the same topic than I have got on anything ever on Twitter. And it, it, you know, I, I've got to say this is this is only only tangentially investing related, but it kind of is, right? At some point, what effectively has happened: the Australian budget is worse off by the tune of twelve billion dollars from BHP alone because we allow them to pretend their money is made in Singapore. So they make no money in Australia because the Australian business mines all this coal or iron ore or whatever it is. They sell it to the Singapore business on paper for cost price plus a little bit. So, you know, you take a, let's, let's pick some number, take it ground for 15, you sell it to Singapore for 17. Australian business makes $2 profit, right? They pay tax on that profit, which is appropriate and, and proper. Singapore then sells it for $40 a tonne. It makes $23 profit and it pays no tax in Singapore. So guess what? no tax gets paid compared to if that money was actually banked as profit in Australia and BHP would have paid the Australian government. By the way, that's the taxpayer. By the way, that's you and me. $12 billion. And I'm not just blaming BHP, by the way. This has been going on for a very, very long time. Pick Rio, pick anybody else. I won't cast too many aspersions because I don't know their specific circumstances. And the same sort of thing with international companies operating here. The tax code is fundamentally broken, mate. When you can funnel off $12 billion in profits. Sorry, I need to clarify, actually. $12 billion in profits, not in lost tax. $12 billion in profits, which is about $3.5 billion in tax, just to be really, really clear. Um, over that 15-year time, it just, I, I don't even know... And frankly, no one seems to care. The, the government doesn't care. The opposition doesn't care. The opposition didn't care when they were in government. I've just, I'm just flabbergasted, mate, that for all of the things where, A, the budget's in an absolute mess right now, B... For all the stuff they do chase down around, I don't know, pick your pick your favourite target on the left or the right, whether it's welfare or robo debt or whether it's you know companies paying tax or I don't really care, you know CEO remuneration. They they target all these little, really unimportant, you know, kind of ancillary bits and pieces. Maybe to fire up the base. Maybe I don't know why. 
and this one is just not being talked about by anybody. What the hell is going on? Yeah, you know, I'll take the other side on this one, uh, and I'll be controversial here. Um, uh, <laughs> Let's be wrong. I've always said that. Uh, so it's just to be. So it's, I, I think <laughs> here's the thing, right? This is an interesting thing to talk about because it looks like big corporation is taking away a lot of money, right? Uh, which I, th- I think you know. Therefore, you you'd get a lot of retweets, you get a lot of likes for this. I think fundamentally, I think the problem is that the taxing mechanism is broken. Nobody's doing anything illegal here, right? Everybody's doing something legal. I've been very clear about that. Yeah, absolutely. So what I've suggested in the past, I think, you know, the problem right now is if you look even at the tax code, the way the tax code is written, or even individuals are taxed, right? You know, if you earn more than a certain amount of money, they're going to tax you so much that there is no incentive for you to work, work, right? Um, Or we are going to put, you know, you're going to charge Medicare, um, uh, you know, uh, levy on top of it that, you know, it makes it really hard for you to work, right? So what I think the tax code is written in a way to penalize or look like it's penalizing certain things, but there's a simple solution to that, right? The simple solution could be, like for example, uh, for, for mining companies, right? I mean, you just charge a regular fee on the um, you know the mine of uh, the mine rights that you're giving, right? And you just have to be mm-hmm. clever enough to um, ch- charge upfront. And uh, you know, if you're giving spectrum rights, well, you charge for those spectrum. And forget about taxing. The, I, I would actually say zero tax for companies. <laughs> I'll oh. go, go all the way to zero tax and say, well, bring all your jobs oh, to yeah. bring all your jobs to Australia. And and what I would charge for is, uh, you know, if you're a mining company, well, I'm going to charge for the right to mine because of that mine that the stuff in the ground is is unique, right? And therefore, I can charge for that. If I'm mm-hmm. giving you right to spectrum, I can charge for that. And then for everything else, like this, the world basically is 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 goods and services. I would I would just have a high GST of goods. So there'll be no personal income tax. <laughs> Everything would be GST. Oh, look and, yeah. Right. You completely well, destroyed the entire tax code. That was quick. Well, yeah, because For 30 I seconds. yeah, because I think <laughs> this would solve a lot of the problems because you know you you, you then charge based on people's consumption. And you charge, you know, you are charging. So it's always been the case that, oh, you're rich and you, you're not paying enough taxes. Well, if you're rich and you're buying stuff, you're going to be paying taxes on those things. Because if you're buying the big yacht, well, I charged you 30% on the big yacht. <laughs> but I would charge 30% for everything. And there would be no other tax. There would be no income tax. You earn as much as you want to. When you're spending it, I'll just tax you. Right, and and that solves a lot of this. You know, it will solve a lot of these problems. It's, it's very simple. I recommend all the governments of the world to follow this, and then they can pay me point zero zero one percent of that for this brilliant idea because this would really. Oh, <laughs> uh, here we go. Here we go. This would really solve all the problems of profiteering, <laughs> moving taxes, and guess what? If it is zero taxes for corporations, you know, no corporation would yes. have an incentive to set up a head office or a, um, you know, marketing office in Ireland or in like Netherlands or I don't know. Singapore or you know Guatemala wherever it is right there's no incentive anymore now you're going to put your office wherever you have the best people to work for that stuff this is great for jobs it's great for people to earn you know you earn more you get more no taxes but you spend more you buy 10 million dollars of a house you pay more you you buy 1 million dollar house you pay less you know, proportionally at least, and it would fix a lot of the problems. The government would have no issues with its, uh, um, you know, with its tax deficits anymore. It will be all solved. There, I have solved the problems. Very, very good. 
Very good. I, uh, I'm i not sure I agree. I think there are particular issues with inequality and, and uh, intergenerational wealth transfer. If you give Twiggy, if they make Twiggy spend on what he what he actually spends, or sorry, tax him on what he spends, uh, or even one of the big CEOs who get to pass on 90% of that to their kids or whatever's left, I think intergenerationally that causes some trouble 10, 15, well, 20, it, 50, 100 years down the track. But we'll... Um, well, we may have to agree to disagree. If, but the moment somebody, the moment somebody, somebody spends, whether it is you know somebody's child or the, we just charge a tax on that. Problem solved. I'm not sure, mate. I'm not sure that works. Anyway, we'll, we'll agree to disagree. All right. I like it, mate. This is what this is a podcast is about: different views from different people. As always, I'm right, you're wrong, but uh, that's okay. We're, that's you're allowed to be wrong. I've said that before. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Thanks, man. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy, it is time for our mailbag. And speaking of market volatility, mate, we got a question from Dale. Dale by email. Not meant to rhyme, actually, but it does. There you go. An email from Dale. Um, Hi, gents. I noticed that it's paying big money to be a podcaster these days after Joe Rogan's recent deal with Spotify for $100 million. Surely you are both in line for a pay rise. Dale, you are absolutely... If you can email our boss at... No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, I mean, feel free if you know his email address, but I'm not going to spam him. That's probably not going to get me a pay rise. I think you're... Dale, I couldn't agree with you. Doc, you, you agree with Dale, don't you? Oh, yeah, 100%. But worth more? Yeah. 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 A lot more. Uh, and and if on your new tax scheme, we wouldn't have to pay any tax on it, which would be brilliant. Uh, but, but, I'm coming around to your way of thinking already. Well, but, well, the moment you buy... You know, when you put your new bathroom in, though, you pay tax. <laughs> That's about new bathrooms. Uh, All right. (laughs) My question to you both is around stop losses and trailing stop losses. After some of the big drops to my portfolio in early March, I thought it would be wise to set trailing stop losses on any future purchases to hopefully minimize my downside risk. Your podcast has been a great sounding board over the past few months of volatility and has prompted me to make some purchases that saw some amazing growth, e.g. I purchased Afterpay at 12 bucks. Each new purchase I've made, I set trailing stop losses at 15%, to hopefully avoid any of the big losses I saw in March. However, one of my purchases, Ordinate, was triggered by this and subsequently, subsequently sold when the share price dropped. I'm not overly upset, as the investment returned 84% within the space of a month. Nice work. However, Ordinate's share price has since risen again, and I have now missed additional gains. My question to you both is, do either of you set stop losses, and when is the best time to utilize this tool? I know I should just let the stock do its thing, and in the long term, things should work out. But after drops in February, March, I find myself constantly looking at my portfolio and trying to find ways of avoiding another big slide. Love the podcast. It's a much listen for me each week. And I subscribe to Share Advisor, which continues to provide me with some great insights. Keep up the great work. He does say PS, the Sunday podcast also show up in my feed. So again, sorry, Dale, we are unable to solve that for now, but hopefully we will. Doc, I reckon you're going to tell me that Dale's probably answered his own question when he says, I know I should just let the stock do its own thing. Hmm. And long term, things should work out. Do you have anything as Dale answers his own question or is it, are there other ways of making this work? Well, he's asked, he's answered his own question. He's asked what we do. Well, I, uh, I can say that I don't use stop losses and I'm sure you don't use stop losses. Uh, so that's Never, that ever answer. in my life have I used it once. That, that is uh, the answer to that. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing I'll just say is that maybe just, you know, he's constantly looking at his portfolio. Maybe just look at your portfolio a little less. And and that would that would help, um, and and the, we don't use stop losses largely because you know the situations like the one he explained with ordinate can happen. You'll get sold out because of volatility, and then you might you you just don't buy because you, yeah. So that's his answer to his questions. I think. That you, you, Dale, you've absolutely answered your own question. All right, I'm not going to add more to that. But we're going to keep moving. Question from Matt. 
Hi, Scott Nanirban, long-time listener, first-time questioner. Good man. I'm 34 and I have two investment units, which I plan to keep through my retirement. Due to my wealth being tied up completely in real estate, I recently owned up a Commonwealth, a Combank investment account and I'm ready to start investing in shares. I've been listening to the podcast for 18 months or so and soaking in as much information as I can before taking the plunge myself. I plan on trying to avoid ETFs due to both your advice on trying to beat the market and the sizable difference it will make by the time I retire. The question I have is this, how am I meant to beat the market if there are professionals and the like that will clearly know much more than me? How much time would I need to commit to get an edge on the market? With a full-time job and family commitments, I feel I will never know enough to beat the market on a regular basis. Quick thanks to both of you for all the knowledge you share and the fun that goes along with it. And of course, hashtag get doc on Insta. Full on Matt. All right, buddy. How on earth is Matt going to beat the market if he's got a full-time job and family commitments? Shouldn't you just buy the ETF and be done with it? Well, uh, Matt, first of all, there's nothing wrong with buying ETF, and there, there are so many different ETFs that one could buy right now. So um, ETFs are a legitimate option. If you don't have time and interest or inclination, uh, then ETFs are a legitimate option. And then, you know, you could, you could actually invest in different markets via the ETFs. And therefore, you know, the, the question of beating the market also changes because, you know, you could meet, beat our market by buying some other market, as an example. Um, so that, that, that's an exa- one thing. The other, you know, investing doesn't have to be too hard. It doesn't have to be too complex, you know, buy good companies, hold on to them, don't trade too frequently, uh, you know, um, take advice from stuff like ShareAdvisor, for example, and just, I think sometimes the R edge really is that we are not looking to do things at hyperspeed. Like we're not looking to buy in, get out, and we're not looking to trade very quickly and you know make a little buck on the up, upside swing today and things like that. We're just basically looking to invest in the growth of a business, invest over a period of time, dollar cost average into those investments, investments, mm. and, and 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 just you know let compounding over a period of time do its thing. So I think our biggest edge as as individual investors is that we can choose the time horizon we want to choose. We don't have to play the monthly game. Mm. Um, you know, like you know, what's the what's the month end report, which most fund managers have to you know provide, which is just very stressful job, right? And that that you know you don't have those, you know, you you can be down one month and that's okay because you're not really worried about a specific month. So I think that, you know individual investors have a lot of different uh, edges, and then of course if you have specific domain knowledge, you can apply that domain knowledge, which may be unique to you versus you know um, lots of other professionals in the market. So there are lots of different ways. So yeah, I'd absolutely say don't rule out ETFs and don't rule out individual investments. Do you know what I love about the Motley Fool, mate? Is I don't reckon there's any other any other investment advice business that gets to say actually maybe don't buy our services, maybe go and do something else. You know, we're, we're going to make money by helping people invest by buying individual stocks, right? Or sometimes ETFs, by the way. We've got some non-ASX ETFs or even some specific ETFs in our services. But um, we get to say, hey, it might not be for you, and that's completely okay. That, that, you know, that's our business model. That's what we're here for. That's what we do. Um, so guess what? If ETFs are fine for you, go for it. And to honestly, Matt, the only thing worse than an ETF is trying to beat the market and losing to the market. So, you know, there's, there's a real risk that by trying to beat the market, you don't. And you end up getting a worse result than just buying the ETF. So the other thing is ETFs can be a great core. So you buy ETFs and then buy individual stocks on top of that and you're trying to feel your way along. You're getting the market return on the ETF and then you might be able to get something extra on top of that or maybe not if you don't if it doesn't work for you. But ETFs plus stocks can also be a, a nice midpoint through that through the middle of that um, scenario. Mate, we've got so many questions. Let's race. On Sunday? Is that is that that's no longer a surprise, right? 
<laughs> Probably not. <laughs> we will do a mailbag episode on Sunday. I got. I. I, I, I we're almost going to do two, two episodes, but I'm not sure how we're going to deal with these questions. Maybe we're just going to be quicker in answering them. I tried to shorten my answer up this time. Hopefully it worked reasonably well. We've got so many questions to answer, dude. It's, it's just crazy. Anyway, that is the end of this particular episode. Make sure you do listen on Sunday for that mailbag episode. And of course, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be wonderful if you wouldn't mind. And tell your friends... We're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk too. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox with an offer for Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.